Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Bernice Heilbrunn. I teach Jewish Studies at the University of Houston. And today we have the pleasure of talking with Shulam Dean about his popular memoir, All Who Go Do Not Return. It's an account of joining the Shvera Hasidim of New Square, New York, having a family and leaving the Hasidic community and unwillingly his family. The book was published by Gray Wolf. It's available at your favorite bookstore or online at Amazon or directly through the publisher, Gray Wolf. It's available in paperback and Kindle editions. Now, a few words about Sean. Sean is founder and editor of Unpious, Voices of the Hasidic Fringe, an online journal, and he's on the board of Footsteps. Footsteps is an important New York-based group that helps people who choose to transition out of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world. Shulam writes for The Forward and Tablet Mag and other publications. His memoir has been hailed in reviews in New York and worldwide in diverse places, ranging from the Wall Street Journal to the Huffington Post, from the Chicago Tribune to the Times of Israel, and to the cover of a Danish newspaper. He speaks widely, too, about his life and about his memoir, again in diverse venues, ranging from WNYC Radio to uh, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. He was recently interviewed by Jane Eisner, Editor-in-Chief of the Daily Forward at the JCC Manhattan. Now, welcome, Shulam, to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you, Bernice. Thanks for having me. Shulam, let's start by perhaps saying a few words about yourself uh, for our listeners. Uh, if you could tell them briefly about yourself, that would be great. Thanks. Sure. Uh, well, I am, my name is Shulam Dean. I am 40 years old. I live in Brooklyn. I spent most of my life within the very insular Yiddish-speaking Hasidic community in New York, in and around New York City. Uh, I spent my childhood in Brooklyn until I was around 13. And then later I moved towards a community upstate uh that is called New Square, which is the home of the Skvera Hasidim. They're a very particular, uh, a very particularly insular Hasidic sect, probably the most insular Hasidic sect in the United States. Um, and I, I joined that community and, uh, I got married there, had five children there, uh, and then ultimately found that that community did not suit me, and I moved away from it. Uh, I was partly partly pushed out, partly uh, partly left by choice, and and now I consider myself an ex-Hasid, uh, and I've been out of the Hasidic world for about seven years now. Well, you, you mentioned this Vera Hasidim, of course, who were central to uh, your life for that time that you lived in New Square. Um, right. Some of the readers perhaps don't know uh, who the Sclera Hasidim are, how a group like that gets its name, and I wonder if you might um, explain that for our listeners. Sure. So the, the, the overall Hasidic movement 
was started in the 18th century and and was split into different sects. And the different sects don't have major philosophical or ideological differences so much as they follow different leaders and and they sort of just split into groups. Uh, just sort of, if your family belonged to one group, then usually, uh, you know, that went down in your family, but people switch to different groups all the time. Um, and there, the Hasidic groups in general are, uh, essentially of the same cloth. They're very similar. Uh, some of the more well-known ones are the Satmars, who are based in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and there are the Lubavitchers, who are based in Crown Heights, also in Brooklyn. Uh, in Israel, there are a number of very prominent sects. One is the Belzers. They're based in Jerusalem. Uh, another one is the Gerers, also based in Jerusalem. Uh, there's the Vizhnitzers. They're based in uh, a small town near Tel Aviv. Uh, so all these different sects are Hasidic communities, but they, uh, they, they follow the same principles for the most part, but there, there are nuances and subtleties of, of uh, the lifestyle that is different. And so the Skverers uh, are characterized by their, by their attempts to be completely separated from the outside world to an even greater degree than most other Hasidim. Other Hasidic communities all attempt to keep themselves separate, to remain apart from outside society, to not have outside influences uh, seep in and sort of uh, penetrate into their world. But the squares are particularly uh, concerned about that, and, and to that end, the previous Rebbe of Skver, the Rebbe is the uh, supreme religious authority within the within the community, uh, so the previous Rebbe, when he came to the U.S. post-World War II, he set up a little, uh, a little community that is 30, about 30 miles north of Manhattan in order to have this uh, oasis of piety and to be able to, to have a community that has a very big concentrated spiritual focus. Um, and so that's really what characterizes this Skvera community uh, and that makes it different from all the others is that it is it is unusually insular. Um, and there's a very, very tight level of control uh, because it is small and because it is I mean, it's not, it's not very small. There's several thousand uh, residents within that community, and there's Kher Hasidim all over the world who are followers, but there's a certain kind of, uh, uh, there's a certain kind of, there's an additional degree of insularity that the Kher Hasidim seek for themselves. Uh, and so that's what, that's basically what characterizes them. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, you mentioned that they're particularly insular, and you mentioned New Square. Um, I wonder if you can give our listeners a flavor for what being insular in a community 30 miles north of New York City in New Square looks like. What what, what exactly, I mean, are, do these people commute to, and I, I know you described this in your book, but um, are you explain to our readers, these people are not commuting to New York City for their day jobs and then returning home at the end of the day. They really live quite a different existence. I wonder if you could give us a sense of that. Yeah, well, some people have jobs outside of the community. Uh, there are many people who have jobs only within. But it is generally in, in the community, there's a strong emphasis 
on remaining within. So if she can find a job within the community that is, you know, sort of by the, by the principles of this community, remaining within the shtetl as much as possible is an ideal to live up to. So obviously people need to find jobs and they need to support their families, which tend to be very large. The average family might be something like eight or nine children or sometimes even a dozen or more. Um, so people do need to find jobs and ways to support themselves. And, and people do uh, have jobs and people have businesses, sometimes outside the community, sometimes in the nearby uh, uh neighborhood or the, or the town over. Um, there are people who, there are entrepreneurs, people have stores, they have, you know, they own restaurants and they own supermarkets and, and they might be accountants and they might be insurance brokers and, and the whole variety of, of things they might engage in and for those things they might leave. Uh, some people do have jobs in the city. Um, there are other people, there are people who have jobs in other Hasidic communities, so some people might commute say, from New Square to Williamsburg in Brooklyn each morning because they, you know, they might work for a Hasidic-owned company in a different Hasidic neighborhood, which is a very, very common thing. Um, there are some other Hasidic enclaves uh, in and around New York. There's another little shtetl-like community called Curious Joel, which is about 30 minutes away from New Square, and there are people from New Square who work in Curious Joel. Um, so that's 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 the nature of it. But it is insular in the sense that there is no one in the community who is not a Hasid living within the community. You cannot buy a house in the community if you are not Hasidic by communal ordinance. Um, you cannot buy a house within the community if you are not uh, a Hasid. If you're not if you're not Hasidic, certainly if you're not. Jewish or not a practicing observant Jew, you cannot buy uh, a home there. Uh, there's only one synagogue and there's only one synagogue allowed. Um, there are no, there's absolutely no outside influence, even by Hasidic degrees. Um, you, there are no TVs in the community. There, you, your movies are absolutely forbidden. Listening to the radio is very much frowned upon. There are no newspapers in New Square. There's not a single Newspaper sold within New Square, um, and they, it, it, New Square is so insular that they do not allow selling newspapers, even when those newspapers are in Yiddish and published by other Hasidim. So there are, for instance, the Satmar community, which is a very prominent community in Brooklyn, which I mentioned before. They have several different publications, weeklies and monthlies, and they have, they have two weekly newspapers. One is called Der Gid and one is called The Blatt, which is read widely by many Hasidim, but even those newspapers are not sold within New Square. And something like the, uh, the New York Times or, or the Wall Street Journal it would absolutely you, you you just wouldn't find that in the square. Not only is it not sold, uh, it would raise eyebrows if if uh, if somebody is seen reading it. Um, and so I, you know, back in the new square when I was living there, and I would I was opening up to the world. I would leave the community. I would get into my car, drive out, buy a New York Times, and I would read it in my car outside of. Uh, the actual village outside of New Square, uh, because reading the New York Times within New Square was something that that was forbidden. It was it was something that I would be I, I would uh, 
uh, uh, you know, people would, would catch the, the stench of secularism on me if they would see me doing such things. Um, and so all of these things, you just, the people of least we are really go to very, uh, they go to great lengths to keep outside influences out. And, you know, to see them in Brooklyn might see various expressions of secularism. The South Park Hasidim in Williamsburg will see, uh, you know, they live their community in Williamsburg, which is known as, uh, I guess, the hipster community, for lack of a better term. Um, although now it's, it's not so hipster. Now uh, North Williamsburg is a very desirable and very extensive neighborhood. Um, but it, it became that because it was a place for young, creative types to, to move in. And so Side by side with the Hasidim in Williamsburg, you have a community that is very, very secular. And the Williamsburg Hasidim, they, they see that. They're observant of it. And they live in parallel to them. But the Hasidim of New Square don't see any of that. They, don't, they, they are not witness to the surrounding culture. The Hasidim in Brooklyn engage with the surrounding culture to some degree. The Hasidim in New Square do not. Um, or, or the Hasidim in New Square at least to a much, much lesser degree. That, that's fascinating. Let me ask you also about uh, language and schooling um, along the lines of the insular life that you described. Um, you read the New York Times because you were fluent in English, but I gathered that people who were brought up in New Square knew Yiddish and perhaps would, would not have been fluent in reading English. Is that true? That That is correct. Well, you know, the entire Hasidic community, wherever you are, um, does not place very strong emphasis on secular studies. Um, it, is, it is decidedly dismissive of secular studies. Uh, so, especially for boys. Girls, girls, it's a little bit different for girls because girls don't have the obligation of Torah studies, so their secular education happens to be a little bit more robust. Um, and so girls generally do get a fair amount of instruction in English and mathematics and some basic uh, basic science, and, and depending on the, on the particular school, uh, and they get instruction in, in reading and writing, and and in, uh, you know, they might get some, they, they have creative programs, you know, girls will do, will, will have dance and music and some art and things like that, but boys do not have any of that. Boys generally spend the entire day um, almost the entire day in religious studies only, except in elementary school, in the young ages, uh, depending on the school, my school, when I was a child, uh, from, from third grade to ninth grade, we had two hours at the end of the day in which we were given instruction in English and math. Some schools don't even do that for the boys. So... I grew up in the borough park, and so I had those two hours a day, like the after-school English and math that I got that gave me just the basic grounding in in how to read and write and things like that. Uh, New Square School takes this uh, takes the subject even more lightly and is very dismissive of it, and just just once or twice a week for an hour teach the really the older boys uh, at at around age 10 and 11, they teach them the alphabet and some basic English words and some very, very, very elementary arithmetic. Um, so that's, that's the extent of it. So 
in the end, my education, my secular education was extremely meager, uh, but it was by many degrees better than what you get in New Square. So I was able at the end of the day to go home and find books wherever I could and I could read them, but a kid in New Square generally uh, could not do that without without substantial amount of effort. So there are some people who learn to read, but there's a, in the Hasidic community, there's a lot of autodidactism. There's a lot of learning things on your own. You figure it out. And so depending on the personality, depending on the drive, depending on your level of curiosity in the outside world, you might develop uh, an interest or, or the ability to, to read in English. Um, but it takes a lot of effort. I do know many... I, I know many people from New Square who eventually came to learn to read and write English on their own, um, and the same in other Hasidic communities. And, um, you know, that's not, not unheard of, not impossible, but they're definitely not taught. Um, so it's a lot of self-teaching. And it's a lot of, it's very similar to the way, you know, immigrants who come to a new country, sometimes it takes, you know, it's an adjustment. Um, learning the language, and some people can do it, and some people can't. Some people have a better, uh, a better ability with picking up how to read and write and speak a language they didn't grow up with and weren't taught, and some people uh, have a more difficult time of it. And so I would say it's a very similar situation with Hasidim. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I should add, I would add that, that my own children, uh, I have five children, and my two youngest my, are my two sons, they're now 13 and 15, they cannot speak, read, or write English. Um, my daughters can, I have three daughters, my oldest is uh, going to be 21 soon, um, and the others are 19 and 17, and they they speak and read, write English fairly well, because they, they received that basic training, but my, my sons did not, because boys generally do not receive that. But the general language, that is the spoken language and the written language within that community, is always Yiddish. Um, people do not speak or communicate to each other in English uh, almost at all. Sometimes, you know, in writing, occasionally people will use English signs at the grocery store, will occasionally be in English and things like that, but for, but generally the primary uh, language within that community is Yiddish. Very interesting. Well, I want to return to how your early education um, may have distinguished you, and also to some questions about um, girls' education and how their situation is so different. But let me uh, shift gears now and ask you uh, about how you chose to join Scavera when you, in fact, did not grow up in such an insular community. Um, I understand you joined because the pitch drew you in. Perhaps you can talk about your decision, your choice to join, and um, how that came about. Right. Well, um, so as I said before, I grew up in, in Borough Park, which is in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is a very Hasidic neighborhood, um, and it is also a generally Yiddish-speaking environment. Um, and you know, on, from the outside, the distinctions are, are probably very subtle. Uh, if you see Hasidim in Brooklyn, in, in Borough Park, and then you see Hasidim in New Square, uh, outsiders probably would not really know the difference. Um, but to me, 
there was something about the Mishkur Hasidim that was very attractive. First of all, there was the Tish, but before I get to the Tish, there was something about Mishkur Hasidim that seemed, uh, that seemed simpler. And when I say simpler, I mean not more simplistic, but just, uh, they seemed more modest. They seemed to live, uh, they seemed to live lives of, uh, really just more genuinely devoted to a spiritual and religious lifestyle than the people in Brooklyn. The people in Brooklyn that I grew up with, uh, they seemed to, their interests were generally not that different from the interests of, um, you know, a standard middle-class American person. You know, people wanted to have good jobs and nice cars and nice homes and, and things like that. And, um, you know, I say this not, not to judge them, only just to describe what it's like. In other words, it's a very devout, religious, pious community, um, but there is a certain degree of materialistic interest, if, if you will. Um, and I grew up knowing that this is just normal, and then when I came to New Square, I saw a model of a Hasidic community that seemed to be genuinely pious in a way that materialism was really less important to them. And so there was something about that that struck me and, and was very attractive to me because it seemed like there was there was an emphasis on living the kind of lives that, that were preached. Um, and and there, there was an emphasis on living on living up to a set of ideals that even Hasidim in Brooklyn talked about, but didn't seem to live up to. And so the Hasidim in New Square seemed to live up to that. And I think that's what, that's what uh, was really attractive to me. Um, a particular moment of attraction was when I first attended a Tish in New Square. A Tish is a religious feast of sorts, really uh, when Hasidim gather around their Rebbe, who is their, their spiritual leader, and there is food, and there is wine, and there is, uh, you know, there's there's some eating, but what characterizes a dish mostly is that there is also lots of singing, and lots of dancing, and lots of, uh, you know, communal fellowship, and and the Rebbe will, will speak and he will share thoughts on, on, on the Torah and on, uh, you know, he'll, he'll speak about what it means to be a pious Jew and he'll, you know, uh, offer some words of inspiration and some other people might offer some words of inspiration. And so it's generally a, a very warm and uplifting and inspiring uh, event and in New Square, a tish is very central to the the life cycle. Um, there is there are three tishes every single week um, that are very very uh, widely attended. They are attended by it's, it's a almost only male event. Women uh, are allowed at the tish, but only as observers in the uh, in the upper floor, which is. No, this is something that is a function of a society that is very, very uh, sex-segregated, which is a whole other subject. Um, and I will add that women have women have some of their own events, and uh, you know, women's events are are closed to men. So, you know, there's there's some of there is some of that, but the, in the same way, the men's events tend to be uh, close to women, or at least as participants. 
Um, but the pitch was something that when I was a 13 year old boy just felt like it felt like something new. And I'd been to pitches in Brooklyn among other Hasidic sects and they were not, they were never particularly inspiring to me. Um, now that's not to say that those pitches are not inspiring to anyone, but they had just never captivated me. And it's like, you know, I guess it's like when, when, you know, you might not be into a certain genre of music, and then somebody gives you a musical album of some new, you know, you know, somebody gives you, uh, you're not into, you're not into folk music until somebody gives you a, a, I don't know, this or that artist, and and you go, ah, now I get it. And so that's what happened with me in New Square. When I went to that tish and I, I stood on the bleachers among other boys my age and they were singing and dancing and it was it was like an epiphany, like, ah, now I get it. Like this is this is what we're doing. Um because I'd I'd grown up with tishes all around me, but they just never interested me. And suddenly in New Square the tish was suddenly meaningful and inspiring and uplifting. Now, I was also a 13-year-old boy. Um, we had some family troubles. My father was ill. He was in the hospital. Uh, my parents were, there was a lot of stress at home. Um, and so, to some degree, Square being a very warm and, because it's a very insular community, there's a bit of a small town feel to it. And so, in the same way that people in a small town might be more friendly than people who live in a big city, um, especially to a stranger, you know, walk into, walk into a shop in a small town somewhere, uh, you'll get a, a more welcoming smile than if you walk into a shop right in the middle of Manhattan. Um, just the nature of small towns versus cities. And so New Square versus the Hasidim in Brooklyn, there, there was that difference there too. New Square was, uh, was and probably still is in, in many ways, a very warm and welcoming and, and hospitable and generous and kind community. It has a, a, a huge number of problems, um, and then problems in problems that I would consider philosophical problems and economic problems and, and, and various other issues and educational problems and social problems. Uh, but it, it, it does have many benefits. Um, and one of those is that it is, it is a tremendously warm community and a tremendously uh, welcoming and hospitable community as long as you look like uh, someone who belongs to that. Not if you're an outsider. If you're, if you're not someone who is a practicing Jew, uh, then they, then they might not be so welcoming. Um, but as long as you're somebody who's essentially part of their world, which I was, because I, I, I was chassid in, in every sense. I, you know, when I came to Nishpur, they, they might not have recognized me as, as being one of them because it's a fairly small town and they know everyone who lives there, but I, I, I didn't look or behave any differently. In other words, I was essentially one of their broader group, even if not one of their subgroup. So, and yet it's that same um, strong, warm sense of community that uh, perhaps ultimately drove you out. Correct. Uh, Correct. Because Correct. doesn't have the opportunity to, uh, for variation um, and independence. Yeah, um, that's that's exactly right. I mean, this is a community that is that is very 
that is very warm and, and hospitable and inviting and very close-knit and also requires a high degree of conformity. If you question the principles of this community, and especially if you start questioning uh the fundamentals of orthodox dogma and orthodox belief, then they will have a problem with you and they they would they won't like you. Now, you know, there, there are two sides to this. You know, they, they might still like you as, a, as an individual, which I think was the case in my case, it, at least with most people. I retained some friendships um, for a while, and m- most of my good friends were not hostile to me, or uh, they were mostly very cordial, even those who, you know, uh, who might might have been uh, somewhat disapproving of me, but but their ideology requires that they maintain a uniform set of beliefs, and if somebody doesn't buy into those beliefs, then they they see you as a threat. <laughs> and so that was one of the things that I found very difficult to live with. It was very stressful uh, once I started opening up to the world and feeling that I didn't quite buy into all these beliefs that I had so strongly been raised with, um, it was, it was, I felt very alone. And not only did I feel alone, I felt like I had to hide who I was because there was, would be no acceptance for me. And this is true not just in a place like Newsport, this is true for, for anyone in almost any Hasidic community around the world. And, and in many cases, even in the, ultra-Orthodox but non-Hasidic community, uh, people also feel like they, they need to conform, and once you start feeling that your own beliefs differ from those of the community, there's a very, very, uh, there's a very strong feeling of loneliness and, and feeling of, there's, there's a lot of fear of being discovered and, and what the consequences of that could be. So, yes, the the high degree of conformity required in that community was exactly what made me feel alienated once my beliefs started to change. That is true. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess our listeners, uh, perhaps from um, more urban, diverse communities, uh, may be thinking at this time that they perhaps belong to different groups where they feel that they have to say whatever it is. The PC um, thing to say within their group that there is some conformity demanded of each of us in particular communities that we choose to identify with, but that conformity probably bears no relationship to the um, the restrictions that you felt and, and that were imposed on you in New Square. It's probably a completely different order of magnitude. Yes, well, you know, the, the restrictions were were sometimes they were tr- they were there in very tangible ways. In other words, you know, if I wanted to do something as simple as you know watch a movie, uh, I would have to do it in secret. I would have to, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't listen to it out loud. I had to plug in a set of earphones. Uh, so that the neighbors didn't hear. And, and in many ways, I had to hide even from my wife, at least at the very beginning. Um, in my book, I describe an episode where it was, we had a cassette player in our home, and I realized one night that the cassette player had a, a functioning radio. And radio was, was 
very, very much frowned upon, if not absolutely forbidden. But I was really curious, and it was in the middle of the night, and my wife was asleep, and my children were asleep, and I got a pair of earphones out of a drawer to listen to the radio, and I was absolutely mesmerized by everything I was hearing. I wasn't hearing much. It was, you know, I was hearing a bunch of commercials about, you know, mattress sales and car dealerships and traffic reports and weather reports. But it was it was mesmerizing to me, but I had to do that in secret. Um, so even within my own home, um, the things that I wanted to do, even things that are fairly benign when considered from a general orthodox perspective, uh, you know, listening to the radio is absolutely okay according to or- the general orthodox worldview. Uh, reading the New York Times is absolutely okay from a general orthodox worldview, but from within this particularly rigid set of ultra-orthodox Hasidic beliefs, all of those things are corrupting influences, and so I had to hide uh, all of that. I had to hide the fact that I was going to the public library and reading books. And so eventually my wife grew a little more relaxed because she realized that I wasn't going to stop doing it anytime soon, but I I still felt the pressure from the community around me. Now, once I I had done even more thinking into it and stopped believing in and stopped seeing myself as a believer in general, um, I no longer considered myself a religious person. I no longer felt that the religious principles, the most fundamental religious principles of orthodoxy, uh, they, they no longer appealed to me. They no longer resonated. I, I did not think they were true. I did not think that they were based on sound premises. But I had to maintain the facade of a believing person within this community because otherwise I would suffer. Um, you, you, you cannot be a non-believer and certainly not a non-practicing person within a community that is so entirely faith-based. So I had to hide the fact that on occasion, uh, you know, on the Sabbath, I might switch on light. Or I might, uh, you know, go into my study and, and check my email. But I, and this I would have to hide from my wife and from my kids and from the people around me. Uh, I couldn't drive my car on the Sabbath because uh, you're not allowed to do that, even though I personally um, felt that that restriction was not based on anything I believed in. Uh, the rules of eating kosher. Um, I, I did not feel that those rules were based on principles that I believed in, uh, but I had to go along with all of this, and I had to hide the fact that I was occasionally violating them. Uh, if I would go to a Starbucks and buy a coffee, and I would spend a certain amount, you know, if I bought, if I bought a coffee, if I bought a latte for $5 and put it on my credit card, that was fine. But if I put $10 on my credit card, then my wife would know that I bought more than a latte, and that might have been, a, you know, the turkey and cheese uh, sandwich, and uh, we would have a huge fight in our home because my, my wife was would get upset that I bought non kosher food. And that was that was very upsetting and that was that, that was what made living that kind of life extremely difficult. Um because I was every way that I turned, every single day, in so many aspects of my life I felt like I was living a lie. 
I was lying and hiding every single day. And, and there's something very corrosive to your psyche when, when you keep doing that, when you feel like you're constantly, and that your, your very essence is incongruous with everything that, that you see around you, that, that you're living a life, you're, you're living an external life that is so different from your internal life. Uh, and to me, that was psychologically really, really difficult, and it, it had a really devastating effect on me emotionally. Um, so, yeah, so, so you know, you, you mentioned that people grow up with restrictions in various communities and that there is a need to conform, and I think that's absolutely true, um, that that conforming, the need to conform and social norms and, and abiding by certain accepted modes of behavior is true in almost any human society. But I think that when you have a tight-knit community like this that is not only really close and really uh, and where you're really under scrutiny, um, but it's also faith-based and ideology-based, then you you can find yourself feeling almost imprisoned by all the restrictions around you. You find yourself in a very meaningful sense lacking personal freedom. And that's that's what I felt within this community. And I urge our listeners to read your book for more examples of the struggles that you um, had to go through personally um, and uh, the lack of um, lack of empathy in your community for what you were what you were trying to maintain, especially with your family, how you, right. how you struggled to maintain um your your um your position in the community uh, for your family's sake. Um let me ask you in terms of um the how the community manages to survive as adolescents um I would imagine must question um, and try to separate themselves to some extent from their families. How do how do people how do people grow up in New Square, struggle as teenagers with uh, trying to realize their own identity and perhaps ask some of the questions that you wrestled with? Um, how, how does the community um, cope with that? I was surprised to see that there was some latitude apparently that there were other people who uh, were with you as you questioned, particularly men who seemed to be questioning also, but who didn't take it um, for whatever reason um, to the, did not take their questioning to the lengths that you did, did not um, probe as as fully and as honestly as you did. Well, like in every society, there will be people on the fringes of society doing unacceptable things. Um, the vast majority in New Square toes the line. The vast majority of adolescents, uh, you know, they, they adolescents might act out in certain ways, but they're acting out is not in questioning the principles with which they were raised. I think this is. Um, this is one of the key things about the Hasidic community's ability to retain its people within. It, it, it has managed, and it, is, it has done this very, very successfully. It manages to indoctrinate children and adolescents and adults and everyone 
um, very, very, very deeply with the belief that their lifestyle is the right lifestyle. Now, you know, as a teenager, I, I fully believed the things I was taught. If on occasion I questioned something, they were, they were fleeting moments. Um, my, my rebellion or my, whatever acts of rebellion I might have engaged in as a teenager, and I did engage in some, they had more to do not with questioning principles, religious principles, but with flouting authority, with countering uh, what was expected of me. In other words, my my rebellion took the form of missing, you know, missing sessions in school, or or uh, you know, there was one incident where a, a teacher at school, when I was fourteen, tried to strike me. Who was, but you know, I'd done something to disrupt the class, and corporal punishment is a pretty standard thing in Hasidic communities and Hasidic schools among boys, not among girls. Uh, but corporal punishment to boys is very common and sometimes very brutal and even sadistic. Uh, but there was a... Uh, one of my teachers tried to strike me and almost as a reflex, I, I blocked his strike and, and, and sort of struck him instead of him striking me. And that was a huge... Uh, that was a very, very grave violation of of how students were to behave to their teachers. And so I was expelled from school. But my rebellion was was more of that kind, um, not questioning the principles. In other words, you know, a good analogy might be that if you have American teenagers uh, rebelling, they might rebel by, uh, you know, they might rebel with drugs or they might rebel with, you know, just, uh, defying whatever their parents or, or, you know, whatever authority figures are telling them to do, but they're not, you know, when you're 14 or 15, you're not rebelling uh, by questioning the principles of democracy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't rebel on teenagers are not regularly uh, in the habit of getting very philosophical. Um, teenagers are trying to establish their own identity, and so they they question the rules, but they don't necessarily question uh, principles and philosophies and theologies and and you know things that have more to do with the world of ideas. Some do, obviously. Uh, there will always be you know uh, uh, thinking children and thinking teenagers, but but this trying to establish your own identity as an adolescent has a lot more to do with. Uh, just questioning how far you can get, you can go to violate the rules. Not because you think the rules are wrong, but because you just don't like them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do have that to some degree with, within the Hasidic community. Teenagers will violate the rules. You know, they'll uh, you'll find that teenagers uh, generally, uh, if you're a Hasidic um, boy or girl, I mean. Certainly, if you're if you're a girl, then then definitely. But even if you're a boy, you're not allowed to generally drive a car uh, until you're until you're married. So suppose there's a 16 year old boy who decides to get a driver's license. That is going against the rules, but that's not questioning the principles. So that's how that's how kids might act out. Uh, girls act out in different ways. Girls will sometimes, uh, you know, in rare cases. Um, but, but it is known to happen. Sometimes girls will find uh, boys to befriend 
and that's an extreme violation of the rules. Uh, they might, girls might engage in sexual behavior with boys, obviously, and, and some boys might do that. And that's, that's an extreme violation. Those are really, really proportionally a, a, a really small number. It happens, but it's a really small number. So this group of people, um, that I would hang out with on Saturday mornings were a very, very small group. And the thing about them was that we were, but we were, say, a dozen or so, give or take. But we were a dozen people who ranged, uh, I was probably the oldest at 30, and then there were a bunch of, uh, you know, younger ones, and they, they, and the youngest was probably something like 19 or 20. And then, you know, there was, it was a group that had people from that were, you know, mostly in their 20s, but spanning a decade of, of age difference. <laughs> And this is in a community of, of several, of, uh, I'm not sure the population of this group, but this group has something like, uh, I think something like 12,000 residents or something like that. I'm sorry? No, I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed at the small number by comparison with the, uh, the size, the general size of the population. I was wondering right. if that worked as a safety valve in a sense, if the Rebbe permitted your dissident group to meet uh, Saturday morning as a way of handling the um, uh, the questioning within the community uh, and doing it within the community. Was that some sort of safety valve? Or? Well, no, no, I, I don't think so. I think I think they just were. Uh, there wasn't much awareness. I mean, the the we were, and I also have to say it's not so much that we were dissidents. We were just people who. You know, I mean, there were different personalities in that group, but the commonality was that all of us in those in that group simply were not interested in the communal prayer service for whatever reason. And so, you know, my disinterest uh, was very, very much because I no longer believed. I no longer uh, found prayer meaningful. I no longer wanted to do that because I had engaged in a process of searching and, and inquiring into the basis of our beliefs and found them lacking, and so I didn't want to pray. Most of the others, I have to say, um, were of a somewhat different sort. Um, most of the others were on the fringes for different reasons. It's not that they were dissidents, it's that they were mostly alienated from the community, either for uh, family reasons or, I, I mean, I, I, I think the majority of those who took part in our little group were unmarried. And so in, in the Hasidic community, if you're over 20, especially in the Sikhara community, if you're a, a, a boy, certainly a, a boy or a girl, um, if you're over 20 and you're not married, you're starting to fall into the category of undesirables. And so these people were not necessarily dissidents by choice. Many of them were undesirables by the community's rules of who is considered high status and who is considered low status. If you're a 25-year-old young man, not married, you have absolutely uh, uh, no status in the community. You are considered... Uh, you're, you're considered just worthless for marriage, uh, generally a loser. Um, you, you do not have many prospects for establishing a family anymore at that point. 
And so the people who were in my group were less dissident than disillusioned um, because their circumstances had led them to feel like they were on the margins of the society. And so that's really what this group was about. But because they were on the margins of society, they, they were less prone to judgment and they didn't care that I was not a believer um, because they, they, you know, they just, they, they were just like, they they were happy to see that there's someone who is defying the rules, even if they themselves were not necessarily prepared to be as defiant. Um, but, but many of them were just, because of their circumstances, were had been alienated from the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, let me go back to for a minute to your early education, which was, um, albeit modestly, uh, in English and math, still more open than somebody who grew up in the Scavera New Square community. Uh, growing right. up in Borough Park, you uh, you were part of a, a different world uh, a little bit, and also your parents um, were new to Hasidism, right? And your father, right. in fact, was actively engaged in the non. Hasidic world in, in reaching right. out, which which is really interesting. I'll leave it to the readers to to read those sections, which I thought were really fascinating. Uh, but I bring it up to ask if that really made you different and perhaps more vulnerable, if you would, or likely to question, uh, because you did have um, such a different background from a lot of other people, perhaps in New Square. What do you think? Okay. It's a, well, it's a common question that I get, and I think. You know, I think the degree to which, you know, we as individuals are able to really honestly uh, assess our own sort of, you know, cause and effect in, in, in the things that we do might be somewhat limited. And, and so, which is, and, and I offer that to say that I am generally inclined to say that my background was not as significant as some might think. Um, but I offered this caveat that I don't know that, that I am able to properly assess it. In other words, very little of my background had to do, very little of my questioning and my searching um, felt like a result of where I grew up. Um, or the result of, of our family's makeup or anything like that. Um, I had considered myself for a very, very long time uh, just a, a fairly average Hasidic young man uh, between the ages of around 14, 15 until I was 25 and the father of, uh, of three, four children. I did not... Uh, read almost any English language material, certainly did not, uh, had very little opportunity to speak to anyone in English. Um, it was very much, I was very much attached to our principles, very much going with the program, um, and very happy within it. So, it, it, it never, it never seemed that my journey to question had any kind of direct uh, you know, relationship to my to how I grew up and 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 how my parents were and what kind of environment I spent in as a child. 
And I should also say that this is not particularly unusual for someone to grow up in Borough Park and then join the Scares. I mean, it happens all the time. And within my within my cohort of uh, you know my classmates. Uh, and I would say approximately uh, 20% of my cohort was originally from Brooklyn. Um, so this is this is actually a fairly common thing for for you know students in New Square to be drawn from other outlying uh, Hasidic communities and enclaves uh, and to be drawn into this sect. And this is true of most sects. Uh, if you go to the Belt sect or the Lubavitch sect or the Vishnit sect, there are always people who who are joiners. Um, they might have come from a different Hasidic community. They might have come from uh, a different ultra-Orthodox community, but hadn't grown up Hasidic. So, it, so even though you know, I I was I was a kind of minority circumstance, but but not a very unusual circumstance. Um, the fact that my parents did not grow up religious, it was I, there was something to that that made me feel somewhat different, um, but not majorly so. Uh, it was it, I, first of all, I didn't know it growing up that my parents had, had not grown up religious. They, I'm sure, for the best of intentions, hid that information from me. They 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 claimed that they did grow up religious, and and they were able to do that because. They both, my parents both, uh, their parents had both died before I was born, and so I didn't get to know them. Uh, my father had one brother he was estranged from, and my mother uh, had one brother who she wasn't much in touch with either, and so it was easy for them to give us a different narrative from what, what it really was. They never told us that they grew up in a secular environment. Uh, they, they claimed that they had grown up orthodox and very orthodox, uh, just that they that they... You know, they, they gave me a sense that they hadn't grown up Hasidic, but they, but they still claimed that they were very religious and observant in a very meaningful sense. So it was only later that I started to gain this awareness of, of just how different they were. I knew that they were somewhat different, but I didn't quite understand where their difference came from. So in the end, my journey probably, you know, my my, my parents... Their attitudes, the environment I grew up in as a child, the level of uh, English instruction that I had as a child, all of those things probably were factors to some degree, but also additional factors uh, were the fact that I was always a voracious reader, and I had been pressured into a marriage that I didn't like, and I was a curious person, and I was somewhat rebellious person by nature or somewhat, you know, uh, I, was, I was always a questioner and always knew that I was a questioner and, and I struggled with the tension of, of you know, wanting to question but also wanting to fit in and wanting to be part of this, of, of the community I was in. I think, I think to some degree, one of the bigger, um, one of the bigger issues that I would say, in other words, more than the fact that my parents were different or more than the fact that I grew up uh, with a slightly better uh, uh, education in terms of, you know, English reading and writing, was the fact that my father died when I was 14. 
And when my father died when I was 14, that really set me up for a crisis. That really sort of, that threw me into a crisis and that really set me up for, for, uh, sort of doing things to, to make up for that loss. And one of those things was to become more, more strongly and more deeply embedded within the Sphere community. Um, in part, probably, and this is only a hindsight thing, but in part probably uh, to replace the sort of the very natural need that, that I, as a young boy, had for whatever a father might give you. Um, and so, like, I, I sought, I looked for a father figure in the Sclera community, collectively. In other words, like, the Sclera community had embraced me in a way that, that, sort of took the place that my father had embraced because my father had been um, an extremely affectionate and supportive and, and very, very loving father, and he was always very proud of me. Um, and he was, he was a person who shaped my, my whole sense of self in terms of, you know, knowing my own abilities and valuing, valuing myself as a, as a, as a person with qualities, as a child, as a boy with qualities. And so when he died, there was a real void. And I think to fill that void, I joined the squares and I, and, and I embedded myself really deeply within that community. Um, and, and I think that that action, probably more than anything, was what led to, to later sort of feeling like, you know, sort of like, like I, I'd wound myself up so tight that it sort of sprung back. And once it sprung back, it sprung back all the way and it sprung back even farther and it all sort of unrolled. Um, so that's, that's how I see sort of my childhood and, and my, my relationship with my parents having affected my journey away from it all. And did writing your memoir help you to come to this realization, to put together the facts to recognize? Um, well, I mean, writing the memoir was... I, it, there was, I mean, people, the other question people often ask is, was writing the memoir therapeutic? And, and the answer to that is no, um, because I, you know, I, I, I needed to do my therapy before I could write, uh, before I could write a good book, um, which I, which I tried to do. But to, to make meaning out of the different threads and the different strands and the different sort of, different pieces of narrative, um, the book was, uh, the book was an explicit project of doing doing exactly that of trying to find uh different episodes that that somehow were connected or even when it may not be obviously so and i don't know if i if the book gave me that realization i think i was always fairly aware that i had embedded myself in the newsgroup community uh with a little too much zeal and that that zeal ultimately uh, constrained me too much, and, and I think I was always fairly aware that I had embedded myself with that zeal, particularly uh, after my father's death, to become to, to to find a warm place where where I would be accepted and embraced and appreciated. 
Um, so I don't think the memoir, re- but I think the memoir did give me some clarity in some of these things. Um, but, you know, it's also, the memoir doesn't cover everything. And there's still aspects of, of this, there's still aspects of, of this journey that, in some, you know, didn't quite make it into the memoir because, you know, not everything, not not every thought fits in, in, you know, memoir. To me, this was not just an act of telling my story. It was a literary project, and it was it was intended for the reader, not for me as a writer. In other words, this was not to serve, as a literary project, this was not to serve me except except in the ways that readers would feel that they, they're reading a compelling story and a truthful story and an honest story and, and gaining some value out of it. Um, and so there might have been other narrative threads and other different thoughts that I had going on in my head but may not have been fully uh, fully realized or fully fleshed out, and so they might not have made it into the book. So, you know, the book was was helpful in doing that kind of in doing that kind of uh, you might say a certain kind of public psychoanalysis of of putting together you know uh, adult events and childhood events and seeing where they connected. Uh, but I don't think the book does that as fully as it could. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does a little bit of that. Yeah, and compelling is um, a good term to describe the book. I found it to be quite a page turner. It's not only very well written, but um, um, as uh, it's a very compelling story. Right. That you right. Present. Well, thank um, you. It's, uh, it's, I have a couple, two, two quick questions remaining. Um, 12,000 people, and of whom perhaps 20% are... Uh, um, new to the community, it sounds like the community does meet its members' needs, um, with the exception of uh, those few who who choose to depart. Um, would would you say that's that's true? Does it meet their needs? And is it because of the pious, genuine, non-materialistic community that um, that embraced you? Well. I, I first want to say to the last thing about the pious and non-materialistic, it, you know, those were impressions that I had as a 13-year-old. Um, and and there's, there's very much, there was very much a, uh, you know, I was very much observing what I now think was a deceptive sheen over over the more ugly undersides of it. Um, so, you know, just just to make that clear, that this community, while, you know, I'll, I'll go into a number of benefits and how it works, but, but you know, I don't want, to, I don't want to leave the impression that this community really is uh, as completely and totally non-materialistic. Um, it certainly is materialistic in very real ways. Um, although, and so, you know, having said that, I will answer your question more directly. Yes, it does, uh, it does provide for its members in a very meaningful way. I do think that most people within it are happy to be there. Um, or if they're not happy to be there, they generally see this, this is their world. This is what they believe. It's essentially like, you know, if you're living in, in you know whatever country it might be, if you're living in uh, 
uh, you know, if you're living in the U.S., the U.S. may not, you know, may or may not be the greatest country in the world, depending on where you stand on that. But, but it may not be, but even if it isn't, uh, it's, it's your place. It's your, you know, your hometown might be here, or, or you have your job, or you have your... And, and it is what it is. And that's how people within the Hasidic world uh, think about their lives. It, this, is, this is their world. They have no other. Um, some of them might relax a little bit in, in the degrees to which they they follow all the rules and some might, you know, some men might get into their cars and, and, and listen to the radio and some women might do other things and, you know, I know a woman in Williamsburg who uh, uh, decided one day to get a college degree and, and she did and she, you know, she got a college degree and she got a bachelor's and she got a master's um, and there are people who just who, who do leave not the community, but they do step away from what the community generally approves of. Uh, I, have a, I have a friend who works as a, um, you know, she's a fully Hasidic woman, and she went to college and got a, a, a bachelor's in psychology, and then she got a, a master's in school psychology, and now has a job working for the New York City Board of Education. And, you know, she's a fully Hasidic woman with, with five children and a, and a very pious and devout husband. Um, and, you know, but what she's doing is somewhat unusual, but she's not getting ostracized for it. Um, she's, you know, she's just doing something that is slightly unusual. Uh, there are other people who do various things. Some people might choose to change slightly in how they dress. Uh, you know, some Different different families have different customs for headgear. Uh, you know, the men in the family might wear a certain kind of hat, and then you know, one person might decide he's going to change to a more modern kind of hat, uh, something more, something he likes more aesthetically, or, or something something more practical. And so, some of his family members might frown on his doing so, but he'll do so anyway. And, and the same thing with women. Uh, you know, different families have different customs for how they cover their, for how women cover their heads. Uh, some families wear kerchiefs instead of wigs, and then, you know, one of the daughters might say, well, I'm going to change and I'm going to wear a wig. Um, and so the family might see that as a deviation from their custom, but, you know, they may or may not accept it. It might cause some tension. Um, so it depends. There's not, so there's some latitude for people to find their own way of practice while still remaining within the community. There there are ways of doing that. Um, and so I don't think that for the most part people within the community feel like they're trapped. There is I think I think the numbers are growing of who do want to leave. I don't think they are proportionally a high number. But in absolute terms, I, I do think the numbers are growing. And I myself know many dozens of both men and women who feel like they were given no choices, uh, very meager education, they have, they have no, uh, no ways to support their families or no, no good ways to support their families. They were never given the ability to make choices on how many children to have. Uh, they were never taught about birth control, and some people might only find out that they could have used it once they have, you know, a, a, a couple might have six or seven children and then then find out that, that they should have, you know, there's birth control that they could have used. 
um, and now they might be struggling to provide for their family, but they have no option. Um, and so there's some people who, who are resentful. But on the other hand, the community is, for the most part, a, a community that provides for its members in very real ways. And one of the things that, you know, we, generally, especially if you live around the New York area and you see the Hasidic community, uh, I think there are people who think that the community is a community with a lot of problems, and I think it is a community with a lot of problems on various levels, but um, I don't think the secular world is doing all that well. I, I think, you know, sitting up on, on, on a moral high horse and judging religious communities for their failures um, and for their social Bills, seems a little bit it seems a little bit misplaced it seems a little bit um, uh, uh, just just not quite but yeah, it seems a little bit sanctimonious and, and uh, just like I, the second world has problems you know we have uh, tremendous income inequality in this country I mean people at, at low socioeconomic levels that are really struggling day to day I mean I I walk through the streets of New York City several times a week and I see uh, homeless people and people digging through the trash and uh, you know in the winter time I will see people uh, in the streets in the cold weather um, I mean these they're, they're pretty gruesome images of suffering in and around New York City and one thing about the Hasidic community is there's no homelessness. Um, if, if you know, if, in a place like New Square, if there was a, if, if you were in, uh, if you're at least if you're a religious Jew and you're in the synagogue at night, uh, and, and you have nowhere to sleep, somebody is going to come over to you and say, uh, "Excuse me, are, do you have a place to sleep?" And if you say no, they'll invite you to their home. They wouldn't ask any more questions. Um, if you're in the in the city uh, community, if you're in the religious community, whether it's New Square, whether it's in Brooklyn, uh, you can get if you're if you're hungry, you can get a meal at any yeshiva where where the students are taking their meals. You can walk in and, and have a meal. Uh, in the New Square yeshiva, it is officially a place that serves both students at the yeshiva and guests from outside. Uh, so someone who might come to visit New Square uh, for, whatever, for whatever reason is completely welcome and even expected to stop into the yeshiva dining room and, and have a meal there. Uh, and, and no one will know that, that, is, that is the norm. Um, so there's a certain safety net that is provided for individuals with that. Now, there are, there are many, many structural problems in, in their economic system and their educational system and all that. But as individuals within that community, individuals feel like they are provided for. Individuals feel that the community serves their needs. That's very impressive. Um, it really is. Uh, We've taken a lot of your time today, and I'm very grateful to you. Uh, we usually oh, sure. conclude our uh, new books uh, podcast by asking what you're working on now. What are you working on? Well, I have a number of projects that I'm that I'm looking at. I, uh, I I have a novel in progress that I've been working on for a number of years that I've laid aside to write the memoir, um, and I, I would very much like to get back to that. I don't know. Uh, if, if I'll be able to, but I, 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 I would like to. 
Um, I have another. Uh, I have I have some some thoughts on the possible other nonfiction uh, memoiristic work. I have a uh, uh, I have a, a collection of essays maybe that I I might uh, sort of put together. Um, and I might do an anthology of published writings that I, I published on Unpious, uh, sort of like an Unpious reader, and put those together. Uh, I think there was some there was some articles there that were really uh, really terrific, and we were proud of publishing. And and so I might do that. And uh, I'm doing some I'm doing some film work. Um, I'm collaborating with with a friend of mine on a feature film, and I am producing. Uh, uh, I'm helping to produce uh, uh, possibly a documentary on, on a similar subject of leaving the Hasidic community. So uh, a number of things going on, and I, and I try to do a lot of um, freelance writing, uh, and I'm, I'm looking to do more of that. And uh, yeah, just um, you know, doing some. I want to doing some more journalism, and I have I have several large scale. Not book length, but, but probably uh, uh, certain certain really in-depth journalistic projects that I'm looking at, uh, and so we'll see. But it, but in the, for the most part, like right now, it's just been uh, just a couple months since the book came out. The book came out at the end of March, and so we, we've just had uh, April and May basically, and so uh like I'm pretty much doing book promoting uh full time i mean i I do some other things to pay rent I do some corporate writing for for just to, for you know as a as a day job kind of thing um but uh but yeah book promoting like i have hardly been able to to think of future projects because i'm pretty pretty busy with uh, you know, getting this book out there and, and getting people to buy it and to read it, and and very thankfully, uh, you know, I'm, I'm extremely it's extremely gratifying that that uh, the reception of this book has been has been really great, has been really really kind, and, and you know, people have people have been liking it, sales have been good, and so that's uh, that's been that's been really super, uh, but it's it's been keeping me really busy too. I can imagine. That's what happens when you write a really popular memoir. So let yeah. me thank you very yeah. much. Uh, we look forward to having you back on new books on Jewish studies uh, whenever your film or collection of writings uh, come out. In the meantime, let me congratulate you on the success of All Who Go, Do Not Return. And let me refer our listeners to your memoir for further details um, in your compelling life story. Uh, we didn't get to talk about your children, but I'm sure the readers will want to go to your book to find out about that very, very important part of your life. Let me ask the readers to stay tuned to New Books and Jewish Studies for future podcasts, and thank you once again, Shalom Dean, for being part of this. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Bernice. I really enjoyed the conversation. 